0: Welcome to eAssist, Growing Your Dental Business Podcast. Tune in as the experts in dental business share tips and tools to grow your practice. To learn more, visit dentalbilling.com. Please welcome our next guest. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today, where we are talking about the claim reviewer side of dental benefits claim reimbursement. I would love to welcome Dr. Dominique Fufidio, who is the CEO and founder of Fufidio Consulting Group. She has a unique coaching style because she has established herself as a successful fee for service private practice owner, a top performing dental claim reviewer, and she just recently joined the Apex Dental Partners as the director of specialty services. She is a co-creator of Dental Artificial Intelligence, and she understands the dental claims insurance review process inside and out, and I'm so excited to have her here today. Welcome, Dr. Fufidio.
1: Thank you so much, Jacqueline. You've been such a great supporter throughout this whole experience, and I'm happy to be here.
0: Oh, good. I'm so glad you're here, too. So I would love to start out by having you share a little bit about your story of how you got into dentistry and exactly what it is that helped you decide
1: to become a dentist. It's funny when people ask that, I always say, well, you don't want me to go all the way back to infancy. And sometimes (laughs) people do, because it says a little bit about who you are and innately what you're born with. But I was the first born, I was the only female in a family with three brothers. So I was always very driven, very headstrong. I was the matriarch of the family, essentially. But fast track to high school, I was a top performing student and I was shadowing my dentist, planning on going to medical school someday. And he said, you know, come work for me in dentistry. If you want to go and be a podiatrist, you'll want to have some type of medical or dental background to make you competitive in the admissions process. And I had to correct him and tell him that I did not want to be a doctor. I wanted to be a physician, not necessarily a dentist because he was confused And soon I started to love everything about dentistry, uh, even the smells, it was really that patients came to you when they were in pain and you alleviated that, but they also came to you when they were not experiencing any pain. And the other disciplines in medicine that I started to shadow and consider, it was mostly patients that were uncomfortable or experiencing pain. So I loved that you got to know grandma, you got to know mom, dad, all the siblings you really were able to establish a long-term relationship with the entire family in dentistry. And then there's a whole nother side to my story about pursuing an engineering background, but everything, I always came back to dentistry. I just love teeth and I love the people in dentistry, organized dentistry and the patients.
0: That's awesome. I love that. So you, you no longer are a practicing dentist. You had a practice, So tell us a little bit about what made you decide to do what you're doing now.
1: So that is a very long story. (laughs) I went to a residency because I wanted to further my skills. So that way my patients could come just to me for everything, all of their, their dental needs. And I would not need to refer out, but then I soon learned that I was becoming so busy with general dentistry that I had to refer out a lot of procedures I had worked for a dental support organization for a little while, and it taught me how to be very efficient. And I soon opened my own practice, was highly efficient, very focused on the patients, on my team members, and that office grew substantially and very quickly. So then when I recognized it was time for me to move on and try and learn other skills and the dentistry was becoming routine at that point, if you treat people right there's disease, it needs to be treated. It was not hard to build the practice. I found the perfect buyer of my practice and I've stayed in close contact with her and seen the practice further grow in my absence. And I had transitioned to the insurance market. Now I love dentistry and I really do love learning about insurance. I had a lot of paradigm shifting moments where I was saying, it makes sense what a dental claim reviewer is reviewing for, but this is not what we were taught in dental school. And I was very intrigued by what are the criteria that these dental consultants and these dental claim reviewers are reviewing for, learned a lot, and then realized that there were better ways of even doing that process. So then I went and worked in artificial intelligence, and I was co-creating some of the products that are used not only on the practice side, but mainly on the insurance side to make that a more um, streamlined process. But then just giving back to my dental community, I realized how there's still so much of a knowledge gap from the general dentist and the general practice to what's happening behind the closed doors of the insurance companies. So I started wanting to give back and I established a video consulting group. And now I'm actually working in a dental support organization again. And I'm excited to be giving back on a larger scale there as well.
0: That's great. So when it comes to dental reimbursement, what challenges do you help dentists and their teams solve? I It sounds like you are super educated. You want that to be your focus and you want to give back to dentists. And so what are those challenges that you help dentists and teams solve?
1: Yes, you are correct. When you transition to consulting or coaching, you're trying to alleviate the problems, um, eliminate some of the pain that the office or the dentist is experiencing. And a lot of that comes from the friction that starts with the insurance companies when these claims are denied. And a lot of times that denial, it's easily overturned when appealed appropriately. So I started the video consulting group. So that way I could help the general dentist as well as the, the practice, learn how to navigate those insurance claims and have not only submission of clean claims, but the appropriate information on there that the claim reviewer is really looking for. So that way that maybe if you have to appeal, it's only one time and not three, four times and always ending in a denial. Believe it or not, and across the industry, as well as in the literature, about 74, 75% of claims are denied because of administrative reasons. And after the appeal process, only seven, maybe 8% of claims are actually denied for not meeting medical necessity. So it's crazy how we could really eliminate some of the overhead involved in all the back and forth and um, come to agreement. With clinical alignment. And that's what I'm hoping to do.
0: That's wonderful. I love that. So, what would you say are the most commonly denied or appealed claims? I know there's a lot of different claims that are, you know, <laughs> being submitted, but there's gotta be a percentage of those. Um, exactly what are those denials or appealed claims? What are what are the most common
1: ones? You are correct. I mean, we have many claim, um, many codes that are submitted, but there are always these same claim codes or categories of codes that do pop up over and over again. And a lot of times they're related to core buildups, scaling and replaning codes. So that's your 4341 and 4342s, and then your extraction codes and specifically those 7210s. So we see a lot of appeals related to those. We see a lot of administrative denials related to those. Uh, Those are the ones that you spend a lot of your time on as a claim reviewer, seeing the same claims over and over again, just missing some of the information that was critical to actually lead to an acceptance.
0: That's, you know, that's good information for our listeners today. So can you go into a little more detail about each of those codes?
1: Oh, I can go into a lot more detail on each of those codes. (laughs) (laughs) So core buildups and um, any indirect restoration, really a single unit, there's so much that we can cover. And that's something that if a listener is really interested in, I can help them with the video consulting group. But if you're looking at your 2,500 codes, your 2,600 codes and your 2,700 codes, Um, So your onlays, inlays, veneers. Now, I won't cover inlays because that's another animal as well as veneers, but crowns and onlays, a lot of insurance companies, they have the same criteria and that criteria will carry over to those core buildups. Now, I'm going to get very technical and possibly bore you for a little while here, (laughs) Jacqueline, but I think the listeners will find it uh, rewarding to be listening to So when a claim is submitted for a crown or potentially a crown and a cord buildup, a claim reviewer, they're really looking to see, is there what we call a DMF, an amount of the tooth that's decayed, missing, or filled? And each insurance company will have a criteria as to how much of that tooth has to be decayed, missing, or filled. So is it a third of the tooth needs to be lost through to some of that compromised tooth structure? Is it a half of the tooth? Now, I bring that up because most of the insurance companies will say, we will reimburse or allow benefits for a crown on a tooth if it is a third of the tooth or 33% if they're using AI is decayed, missing or filled. And there's additional decay sometimes without. There's so much that I can talk talk to the listeners about on this topic. But a core buildup needs to have a substantially more amount of tooth structure that's lost. It's not meant to be a block out or um, an under for an undercut. It's meant to retain a crown. So typically we need to have a cusp completely lost. So we have um, one of those walls that's missing so that retention is really compromised or really half of the coronal part of the tooth missing. So core buildups, we do see a lot of denials and appeals for those. And if an office were to submit the appropriate photographs um, from the procedure and have a narrative, a well-written narrative documenting what the claim reviewer is really looking for, because even though I've alluded to these insurance companies having different criteria, it's largely similar across the board, but just slightly nuanced from one to the other. Now, there are insurance companies that will say, of course, any posterior endo, it's the standard of care to allow a crown and a buildup, But then some are saying, yes, we'll allow that crown, but that core buildup, you still need to have at least 40% of the tooth um, structure lost after that posterior endo. So, with the core buildups in specific, I was really surprised the first time I spoke to a claim reviewer, and then when I was trained on reviewing for core buildups, that there is another code. The core buildup is the 2950, and then we also have our posting cores but there is a 2949 code that is meant to be used more when there's a block out that's being done or there is an undercut that does need to be blocked out. Um, General dentists aren't made aware of that. It wasn't part of my didactic instruction. And when I do those peer-to-peer calls and I would talk about that, it was usually um, something that was largely unknown in the industry. And I'm happy to talk to listeners more about that. But I know we have other codes to make our way through. So scaling and root planing, I would see time and time again a narrative that says that there's four millimeter pocketing, there's bleeding on probing. But with scaling and root planing, the one distinguisher for if that claim will be paid for scaling and root planing benefits, whether it's a 4341 for the whole quadrant or the 4342 for one to three teeth in a quadrant, is is there radiographic bone loss? And it has to be considered um, substantial enough for a claim reviewer to say, yes, beyond the shadow of a doubt, there is bone loss there. Because what I interpret as bone loss or visible bone loss on one X-ray, another consultant may say, no, I don't think that there's bone loss there. So there's actually a host of literature saying that true bone loss will be seen due to angulations of the X-ray positioning um, devices at two millimeters of um, a radiographic distance from the CEJ to the crest of bone. So there are actual measurements that insurance companies are looking for, but again, these things were just not taught in dental school. I know I'm getting very, very technical and I have so much more to still relay about scaling and root planing, but a lot of times when a claim would come in and I was unfortunately um, denying those benefits or not recommending those benefits for that scaling and root planing, It's because there was four millimeter pocketing and bleeding on probing, but there wasn't any bone loss and there's a more appropriate code for that. It wasn't available when I did my training. And I think that's why there's a gap and a disconnect in the community because it's a newer code. When I say newer, it still has been out for over a decade, but that D4346 code is really designed for cases of gingivitis because bone loss, visible radiographic bone loss on an x-ray is what would qualify for scaling and root planing. Now, I also saw the reverse where I would see a 4346, which is intended for gingivitis be submitted for a claim review, but I would have to deny it if I saw bone loss because the more appropriate code is actually a scaling and root planing. So I have a lot of information about scaling and root planing. I actually have a whole separate module about it because I do a lot of use cases with um, my clients to make sure that they know what a claim reviewer would be looking for so they can make the most appropriate decisions in their offices. Now, there's also criteria for periodontal surgeries. Was there a pre-surgical workup? There's so much information out there that's just not distributed to the offices. And it is common knowledge if anyone were to do a peer-to-peer review and ask a claim reviewer what they're looking for, all this information would be, um, relayed to them. But I know that we still have another section of codes to get through and the extraction codes that 7210 surgical extraction code is notoriously one of the hardest to, um, have reimbursed because there needs to be sectioning and, or bone removal. Now, We're not saying that the tooth was sectioned and benefits would be allowed just because the tooth was sectioned or bone was removed. Was it necessary to do that? All of these claims, an insurance company and a clinical claim reviewer is looking to see, was the treatment done medically necessary? And that's why benefits would be allowed and not necessarily was it done. So of course we just have to pay it. So I have a whole nother module about extractions to make sure that the key terminology is included in the clinical documentation that's being submitted. So that way claims can be successful. So I know I spoke a lot there. I want to open it back up to you because we were talking about the most commonly denied um, and then appealed claims.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds great. So you've covered core buildups, scaling and root planning and extraction codes, which is sounds like all of those you have, it sounds like you are an expert really in all of those areas. And I'm excited for our dental community to learn more about you and your organization, Dominique. So tell me what happens if, 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 if a claim is still denied, like, or an appeal is denied and what, what, what would a practitioner do if that's the case?
1: Yes, because 74% of claims are denied the first time around due to administrative reasons, definitely appeal it. Read the EOB, the explanation of benefits. And I'm not saying the dentist has to, this could be anyone in the office, the insurance coordinator, read that EOB and see why was it denied? Did you need a PA that showed the entire apex? Did you need a full series of x-rays? Did you need a perio chart, the date of insertion, prior insertion for one of those crowns? Something like that could simply be rectified. But if all of that was done, I suggest an appeal and I always teach proper documentation and um, clinical progress note best best practices. So that way a screen capture of the treatment notes can actually be submitted in the appeal. Now, if it is still denied there, exercise your right to what's called a peer-to-peer call. People don't know about it. When I was in private practice and I was calling on these claims after my front office was calling three, four times and the claims were denied, I would call and say, this patient has periodontal disease or this patient needed this crown. What else can I do? And the representative would just matter of factly tell me you have a right to a peer to peer call. And that's what it is. You have a true right to speak with a claim reviewer, maybe not the specific one on that case, but a claim reviewer that it can explain to you why it was denied and go beyond that EOB language, which is very cookie cutter. So they can say, Hey, if you had this, we could overturn this denial. And that's when you as the doctor can say, I do have that. I just need to get it to you. So that way you have documentation of it. So I really teach what you should have as your documentation. So when you have those calls or have those appeals that you're writing, have those denials, you know what to furnish the insurance company with. I loved peer-to-peer calls, even if uh, I didn't necessarily love doing them as a claim reviewer, but I became interested in insurance because I was constantly calling and speaking with the insurance claim reviewers. And I have some fond memories of Teaching moments and being taught what's happening in the insurance companies, what the clinical um, claim reviewer is looking for, and they're a wealth of knowledge. They um, are—they're just humans. They want to make sure that your claims are paid and help you if you can't get that claim paid. At least know what you need for the future ones. So I talk a lot in my trainings about how to go about that peer-to-peer call because these consultants, they're so overworked and they're told not to wait more than two minutes um, on hold. You have to be prepared for them and you can very easily take that denial and have that switch to an acceptance with the correct approach.
0: That's awesome. I love that. You know, I feel like claim reviewers get kind of a bad rap and I love that you speak so positively about them and they're, you know, they are real people and they just really want to help you figure out how to get your claims paid. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that you talked about the claim reviewer like that. So and
1: the insurance companies too. I mean, they really are very happy to pay benefits when they're warranted. They just need to have all of the documentation to actually give you the benefits. So I'm happy you feel that way about the clinical claim reviewer. And I feel that way about the insurance companies.
0: That's, that's great. No, I think it's good. We all have to kind of work together to make this happen. Right. And to get, Mm -hmm. to get practitioners, the, the basically the money that they are eligible to receive. So
1: one of the things that was taught to me when I was a claim reviewer, and I love this is you just have to remember that it's a benefit determination and not a treatment recommendation. The treatment recommendation comes from the provider that comes from the clinician and in the insurance companies, they're making a benefit determination off of that information that's submitted from you as the clinician. So that's where I, I hope to help eliminate some of that friction. But there's also just that that awareness that we think dental insurance is like any other insurance out there. We think it's a layer of protection, but it's more of a benefit plan. And I used to always tell my patients, it's great when it can offset the cost of treatment, but by no means will it cover the entire cost of dental treatment and that's really largely dependent upon the policy selected by the employer as well there that's a whole nother conversation there
0: that is a whole and and they those and basically those employers they do make the decisions for all the employees of what will be covered and what will not be covered and it typically comes down to cost right (laughs)
1: Yes, these are financial decisions and they're personal financial decisions.
0: They are. I totally know. So what let's just we're going to get to we're getting close to our time. I I feel like today, but I wanted to ask you one last question. And what is it that motivates you to continue helping Dennis?
1: Ah, there's that term uh, servant leadership. I am a big subscriber to it. I love mentorship. I've had great mentors. You and I have talked about how people make mistakes and you learn from mistakes. And I meet so many people that are just, they feel ill-informed or they're scared and no one should feel those emotions. We all just need to come together, redistribute or distribute some of the knowledge that we have because there's no way in a lifetime that we're even going to learn all the information that's out there. And I love being a resource and just helping lift that anxiety off of someone helping see an office go from their aging report, just growing to actually having these claims paid and patients be happy, doctors be happy, the whole office be happy because the positional leader, the one in the, the authority figure is in a good place. So I have knowledge to share and I love teaching. And maybe it goes back to that innate being the firstborn in the family with the three boys and all younger cousins, but it's just a passion of mine. And I'm happy that I discovered the the need for this type of consulting and coaching.
0: I I'm happy you did too. I'm happy you chose dentistry for that brought <laughs> us together today. That's that's a good thing. And I and I love all of the information you've given out today around those dental codes that that are getting denied, (laughs) and the reasons why they are getting denied. And I love that you and your organization can help
1: practitioners. It's just seemingly complicated when it's not, it doesn't have to be. So thank you again for all your support.
0: Oh, you're welcome. You're so welcome. So before we is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up today?
1: Well, specifically, I'm excited that I'm doing a recorded webinar for you. So I'll have more information where we'll, I'll be able to cover an hour's worth of information with um, your listeners and your attendees. I do have my consulting group. I'm happy to help anyone that that's in need. And I really do enjoy publishing content. So I've been putting YouTube videos together, writing articles. They're going across many media outlets, um, including your own. <laughs> So I, I hope your listeners will look out for some of that, and I hope that they'll find some enlightening moments by reading and listening to them.
0: Oh, I'm sure they will. And if you personally need help by Dr. Fufidio, you can reach out to her website and get in touch with her. Um, it is www.fufideoconsultinggroup.com, and we will spell that for you in the show notes because <laughs> it is um, it is a unique name for sure. I had to ask her how to pronounce it. I was like, how do I pronounce it? And honestly, you pronounce it just like it's spelled, so it's pretty easy once you once you read it. So. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. Again, our goal is to offer tips and tricks to help dentists grow their business. And I appreciate you, Dr. Fufidio, for being here. And thank you for taking the time today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right. We'll see everybody next time. The purpose of this podcast is to interview the consultants within our eAssist Consultant Network. This podcast is for informational purposes only. For more details, please visit the homepage of this podcast platform at dentalbilling.com. Thanks for listening.